Last night, we had a basketball game. My son David played his second game, and it was my second game to coach. And uh, John, go ahead and go to the next slide. So I kind of like coaching, um, and I like it especially when I put something in a, uh, that I'm teaching them from my experience, and they put it into practice. It's great. So David, yesterday, he grabs my uh, little dry erase board, and he says, Dad, this is the new plan. And he starts talking about how, um, you know, this one's going to run here and this one's going to run here. And he's like, and two passes to three, three passes to four, and four passes to five. And then we shoot, we score. And I love it. Like, he's thinking strategically. I love that. I love that he's kind of copying what I'm doing. And so that's, that's really exciting to me. Um, we're 0-2, by the way. So um, <laughs> What's not as great is... Uh, is whenever I'm coaching them in the game and then they would prefer, though, to do their play rather than what I've been coaching them to do. Um, basically, they would prefer to, uh, to play basketball in their ignorance uh, of the game rather than in the, the little bit of expertise I have and saying, no, we're just going to have one person dribble the ball down and then pass it to another person and simple things like that. How many points have you all scored We've scored five <laughs> in two games. <laughs> so, uh, so I, uh, Caleb is playing too. He scored four points in his first game alone. So there you go. Um, I'm thinking about two sides of a situation. Uh, maybe sometimes uh, you've been the one giving advice to somebody or critique. And you look back and you're like, I have no business giving them that. I don't have any experience in what I was talking about. Or maybe you've been on the flip side of that where um, someone is offering you advice or, or help or critique uh, and uh, it, was, it was not asked for, it was not needed, and you're like, hmm, thank you so much. Um, as we get into Lamentations 3, we're halfway through this collection of poems. This is the first time and the only time where hope is offered. It's the first time and the only time where this spiritual direction towards repentance is offered. And I think it's really important that we really analyze, okay, um, when is the right time to offer hope and lament? When is the right time to offer direction and lament? Um, because we've been saying that um, in the, for the American church, we've not practiced lament before. And so we haven't been equipped, so we, we don't identify well or connect well with people that are going through suffering. Um, it, it hasn't equipped us really to deal with the reality of the world that's full of both joy and pain, both celebration and suffering. If we never uh, admit to suffering, if we never talk about the problems, you know, it's, we pretend they're not there. We've been talking about how that hasn't equipped us very well. Um, go to the next picture, John. Um, if we imagine that those who are oppressed, those who are suffering, um, are down in a pit... It still looks like a basketball thing to me. No, it's the next spring. Okay. Go, um, go to the... There's a picture of a person in a pit. It's about five slides down. And we'll have to bounce back. Um, there's not... No all pictures. the pictures are just the basketball. Okay. All right. So, in your mind's eye, <laughs> picture somebody down in a pit. Picture somebody that is in, is in a dark place, and you and um, yeah, and that's right. It, it feels 
So often it feels like when you're when you're in a, a depressed place, when you're in an oppressed place, um, when you're suffering, it feels like you're just in a pit sometimes. And a lot of times the way the church has responded to that is to be on the edge of the pit. Maybe we even kind of help push people into that pit. And then we're looking over the edge and we're saying, hey, you know what I would do to get out of that? You know, let me tell you how to, how to fix that problem. Or, you know, I, I bet this is why you ended up down there. You know, probably shouldn't do that next time. And that's kind of the way that we've, we've offered hope or advice to people that are in the pit, in the middle of, of sorrow. Um, so I want us to think about that. Now, as we get to this chapter, um, the reason that is, you read the whole chapter, first of all, uh, I'm going to tell you. So Charles talked about how this, uh, this letter, uh, or this, this collection in Lamentations, actually has a lot of structure to it. If we could read it in Hebrew, we'd see, okay, it, it, chapter 1, chapter 2, they go down using the Hebrew alphabet, A, B, C. And so they go through the Hebrew alphabet, and that's, those are the first couple chapters. Well, by the time we get to chapter 3, uh, we've tripled the Hebrew alphabet. So there's 66 verses, so we've got A, 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 B, 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 C, C, C. So the whole Hebrew alphabet three times through. Now, the book that we're using, uh, Prophetic Lament, uh, the author Raw, he says, the reason why we've, we've got this in chapter 3, it's kind of the epicenter of lament in the book. And there's so much sorrow, there's so much pain, that we need three times the normal structure to be able to express it all. We need that much space to be able to express it. Now, at the same time, sorrow and pain can be overwhelming. It can be devastating. It can feel like you're in a pit. It can feel, feel like you're in a whirlpool that's sucking you down and you don't know when you're going to be able to come up for breath. And so just as celebration needs to be balanced with lament, so also uh, Ra argues that lament needs boundaries too so that it doesn't overwhelm us as we partake in it. Um, Rather than limiting what needs to be said, he says that lament um, is truth-telling. And the acrostics provide these safe boundaries and guidelines where truth can be expressed. Let me pause for a moment and and, and let's see uh, if you guys are tracking with me. So, why do you think it would be important to provide some structure for lament? What do you think? Structure implies boundaries. So it's helpful to have those boundaries. Okay. Because we can get lost in the depths and we can lose sight of Yeah. It can just feel like drowning. Yeah. And that, go, having a whole acrostic says, we're going to take the time to do that. And that's uh, my follow-up question. Uh, get to that. What's the danger of not allowing people to fully mourn a loss or fully lament? Well, that something else in there. Yeah, bring it in. It's also showing us that there's not chaos. That chaos is not the overwhelming thing. You know, it feels like chaos. There is something going on there. Right. That, uh, the second question again, say, say that again. The second question is, what's the danger of not allowing people to fully express their hurt and lament? They can't be healed. They can't be healed. And it finds its way of creeping back in. Okay. 
like any feeling that gets pushed down, it, it turns into something worse when it gets hard. Mm-hmm. You turn it off enough, like, or worse. Yeah. Yes, yeah, feelings of stuff can, can show up in eating disorders, can show up in trying to please other people to the ex- ex- expense of your own integrity. You know, it's going to show up somewhere in anger and frustration and mm-hmm. sleeping troubles. It's going to show up somewhere, just psychologically, physically. Right. So if we don't allow that space, it, it's going to show up somewhere. Um, it's going to create potentially bitterness. It's going to it's going to create this numbing of, of who we really are, uh, this constriction feeling. So lament and and letting uh, there be this structure of lament where we can fully express it and yet it has some boundaries can be really healthy. It can be really good. Um, so that's one reason why this chapter is significant because it's like we're going to let it all out here. We're going to do the alphabet three times through. Um, the second reason this chapter is, is significant is it's a very personal chapter. Um, the first, it, it's bookended by these very, this first person narrative. The first 21 verses, the last 18 verses are all first person. Now commentators say, they kind of point to Jeremiah the prophet as, as the voice here, or, or one, of the, one of the voices here. And what's ironic about that is if you, if you know much about Jeremiah's life, um, not only did he suffer with the people through what we've been talking about, this, this conquering empire, Babylon coming and destroying the city, he suffered all the way up to that by his own people. Because he's warning the people about this, and then they're doing all these things to him before, any of the, before Babylon even arrives. So in verse 53, um, I may have this one up there, John, but um, Izzy read to us how in verse 53 he says, um, they tried to end my life in a pit and threw stones at me. The waters closed over my head and I thought I was about to perish. Now I'm going to go back to uh, Jeremiah 38. I think we have this one up here as well. Um, and this is the story where Jeremiah has been warning the people that Babylon is coming now and that they shouldn't depend on the Egyptians. They shouldn't uh, try to fight. This is part of God's uh, judgment plan. So just they, they need to uh, give up towards Babylon. So this is what the, the officials say. The officials say to the king, this man should be put to death. He is discouraging the soldiers who are left in the city as well as all the people by the things he's saying. This man is not seeking the good of these people, but their ruin. He's in your hands, the king says. The king could do nothing to oppose you. So they took Jeremiah and put him into the cistern of Malkija, the king's son, which was in the courtyard of the garden. They lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud. And Jeremiah sank down into the mud. And so as we read Jeremiah, Lamentations 3, we've got a lament of Jeremiah of the things he suffered at the hands of his own people. But here's the strange thing. His lament, his story has become their own story, their own lament. Uh, The people of Jerusalem are now the ones that are stuck in the pit and feel like they're drowning. Now, if there was ever a time for for gloating, uh, it could have been this one. Jeremiah could have left the city, could have gone up on the Mount of Olives next door, could have looked at the city now lying in ruins on fire, the enemy soldiers running through the streets, and he could have said, see what it feels like? You deserve everything you're getting. That's not what he did, though. Jeremiah is in the city. He is in the midst of suffering. 
and he experiences all that suffering with his people. Streams of tears flow from my eyes because my people are destroyed, he says in chapter 3. He's not gloating because his story of suffering has now become their story of suffering too. I mentioned earlier this, uh, this image of a pit that we're imagining. Um, and how often do, again, we speak to those that are in suffering and we speak to them from outside of it? Um, how often do the wealthy look at the poor and say, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? If you, if you weren't lazy, maybe you wouldn't be in that situation. Or people that are suffering from anxiety or depression, people are like, you know, just, you just snap out of it. you gotta, got to... Got to get happy, you know, bounce on your toes and get happy. Um, or people that are struggling in faith. And, and people say, just, just got to believe, you know. Just got to read your Bible. Just pray more. It'll be okay. I've been the recipient of such unhelpful words um, that before. And I've also undoubtedly given them out, John. Um, Kara, I liked how you said last week that God has street cred with the people. Because he's faithful to his promises, both the good and the bad side of that. I think Jeremiah is the only one that gets to voice a glimmer of hope. Because he has credibility as one who has suffered at the hands of the people. And he suffered. He, didn't, he doesn't leave them. He suffers with the people. No one in Jerusalem can deny that Jeremiah is well acquainted with sorrow and with grief. He's got the scars to prove it. And in that way, he kind of points towards Jesus, who was also called a man of sorrow, who was well acquainted with grief, who was despised by the ones that he came to, uh, and yet who stays with them and takes on their sin and offers a way to God. Let's think for a minute about who you go to in moments of sorrow and despair. Who do you want speaking into your life? Uh, when you feel like you're in the pit. Um, name, name either some characteristics of a, of a person or, or uh, does anything come to mind? Who do you want speaking into your life in those moments? People who give you permission to be sad. Yeah, permission to be sad. People who are good listeners. People who are good listeners. Yeah. I wasn't here, Ted, when you went through chapter one, but I think... You said something like, shut up and listen up. <laughs> yeah. People that allow me to be real. Okay. You don't have to put on a mask. You can just be yourself. People that have an experience of that. People who can empathize and be in it with you. Not from the outside. Yeah. So, so I just finished 13 weeks of grief share. Yeah. And, and so there, I was grieving. And so the 13 weeks, they had a half hour video that had clips of many, many people that grieved and how they dealt with all different phases. So they were speaking to me. They were telling me how to do my life. They were telling me how they did their life, how they gone through their grieving. Yeah. There were some counselors mixed in there to get some insights from their practice. So it wasn't prescriptive. It was descriptive. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, I've been to many, 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 many CrossFit meetings, and there they say what we have to offer is our experience, strength, and hope. We're not here to advise and counsel and straighten each other out, yeah. but 
when I have trouble sleeping, then I do, then what worked for me is this. Right. You can take it later, but this is what works for me. Right. Right? And, and I think that's where, when Jeremiah says um, something about hope, I think people can listen. When he says, you know, when I was down in the pit, when I was sinking in the mud, crying out to God, and then he came, he did come, people are like, Jeremiah, actually, this happened to him. We put him in the pit. And yet, he has hope that, that the Lord can save. He's credible. He has something to say to us. And this is what Jeremiah says about hope uh, to the people. He says, we can't, we're not going to fix our own circumstances by our own power. He says, the hope that we have is from remembering the character of God. From remembering who God is. Um, there's hope, he says, because God is a God of steadfast mercy and love. So he's steadfast, he's faithful to his promises, like we talked about last week. He's not wishy-washy like humans, where one week we're, we're good at keeping our promises, and the next week we're not. God's always going to be good at keeping his promises, and that's something that we can put a stake in the ground and say, God is faithful to, his, to what he said. Amen. Then, he says, there's hope because... God's anger is only temporary. One person says, it's not God's love, but his anger is the passing phase. So that's where Jeremiah says, in the morning his mercies are new. You know, I've gone through this night of feeling alone and feeling desperate, but I've found through experience that in the morning I find his mercy in a new way. He says in verse 32, though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. And then he takes a, a step further. He says, so there is, there is hope, people. There is hope in the character of God, even though we're experiencing all this sorrow. And then he says, let's examine our ways and test them and let us return to the Lord. Let's lift up our hearts and our hands to heaven and say, we have sinned and we have rebelled against you. And you have not forgiven. So he's leading this community confession of sin. Kind of like what, what we do as part of our liturgy. But here's also what strikes me. Uh, is Jeremiah at fault for the sin of his people? I mean, he's kind of been, his whole life has been warning them not to do this. Not to be, go down this road. They go down it anyway. And now they're suffering the consequences. But does Jeremiah shield himself from the need to confess? No. He joins in the confession of the people. Their sins become his own. Their rebellion becomes his own. So think about how, how does that translate for us. Um, we can stand aloof. We can stand back from the sins of our city. We can stand back from the sins of our country. We can stand back from the sins of the church. And we can say, I shouldn't be held responsible for this. I've, I've said that before. I think I've said that to you before. Um, or we can recognize that we're part of something that is broken, that needs truth and light and repentance. Um, just one thing that example that comes to mind and, and I know some examples are coming to your minds as well um, I, I listen to books in the car and I listen to a book about 
um, the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, and the, and the wars that took place in the, in the central part of the, of the country at that point, um, between the United States and the settlers, and then the different tribes of uh, First Nations, Indian peoples, and, um, and all the, the tragedy and the, the ter- terrible aspects of, of that history. But what comes up again and again was just this clear betrayal and suppression by the U.S. government versus the tribes. Um, and I wasn't alive then. Um, I don't even know if all the, the Scottish ancestors of McMullins were had come over and settled in the United States at that point. But I'm a resident of Dallas, Texas. I live in a society um, that is built upon some of the benefits of that action and that betrayal. And those things were wrong. And it's right for me to confess the sins of the society and the, the city and the country that I, I live in and that I enjoy the benefits of. And it's especially helpful for me to validate the truth that that was wrong uh, to those that did not benefit from it. And that's just one example among many I know for we live in a broken world and no one is exempt from communal sin. So let me ask you this. What would it look like in our country, in our city, for the people of God to be fellow sufferers, to be advocates where people that are suffering would want to come to us um, for comfort, for lament, um, and maybe even a glimmer of hope? What do you think? for the wrongs that have been done. Good. What else? Because I don't think people see the church as Jeremiah with the we don't have the street cred yet, right? I think it gets messy. Yeah. I think really because we don't know how to do it. Jump into that and jump into something that you're not, you may not even be prepared for. Mm-hmm. But that, does, that should never stop us, even if we're not prepared. Yeah. Yeah, we're not going to have the right answers. Um, certainly not on the front end. Okay, but it's still the right thing to do. So, as Americans, the water we swim in is very individualistic. Mm. You know, uh, in, in seminary, I get to know a lot of people from Africa and Asia, and they're very more collective and corporate in their orientation to life. 
It's about us and our community and our village. It's not in the meanness and the eyeness. It was like very, very, very back, less, less. And uh, so we noticed that, you know. Uh, comes to mind is that we are the body of Christ. So if one suffers, all suffer. Mm-hmm. The Bible says that we are to go visit those in prison. Go there, says that. And the persecuted, we're to, we're, we're to identify. There are brothers and sisters, the persecutor of Christ exists on the planet today. And yet one Sunday we go, okay. And then we go on. Mm-hmm. You know, so the Bible didn't say, you know, one day to do that. And we are the, we are the human family. That whether you're, I mean, what, what Buffett says, he won the the the, the lottery, in ter- the birth lottery, because he was born into America. He could have been born into Bangladesh. He was fortunate. He was born where he was born, and have his privileges that were passed to him. Mm-hmm. But therefore, how can we, with our finances, with our time, with our talent, with our, I mean, I put it in a box of stuff. I have a little bit one million probably, but yeah. I send a box of stuff to the thrift store because I don't need to clear up my life with more stuff. Yeah. There's people that can benefit by my stuff. So how do we how do we leverage the privilege that we have to speak for people that cannot speak for themselves, yeah. that cannot um, don't get a voice or they need a voice? I was actually thinking something like that too. I mean, just about. Um, I, bit, I, I don't know, I feel like I think a regular bit about like setting like if my kids are, for example, in a public school that's new and there's lots of stuff going on um, and there are problems, like I have the choice because of where I am to pull them or I have the choice to keep them there and to try to like wrestle through things like that. Like, um, so I try to remind myself a lot when my like my gut instinct is to be more comfortable and to try to make things better and easier um but it's privilege that allows me to like have those choices and so just to kind of think through the lens of well what is the experience of other people aside from me who don't have a choice and trying to advocate to make things better for everybody um but it just is like a just a thing that you have to be I don't know. It's just it's sort of a battle. Yeah, because it's natural. Um, what we've been trained, raised, our culture is individualistic. Yeah. Tara. And I think until until those things are brought to us, we don't we don't really think much about them. Uh, at work this week, we had a, a huge party, um, and. What they did was, and, and I looked around me, these are people I work with, and we played a game, and it was centered around this whole thing. It, it was, if, if this has ever happened to you, step forward. And so I got to look at a lot of my colleagues, um, you know, and they said things like, have you ever been discriminated against? You know, things like that. And to look and see my colleagues step, step forward. And uh, to see these are people that I work with that have been discriminated against, and that whole that whole game was to look at us as an organization to say, are we a diverse organization, and are we diverse in the people that we serve, and if not, how do we go in that direction? Mm-hmm. So that was very amazing to me that they put together a whole uh, group together to look at an organization to see 
are we diverse in who we hire and are we diverse in who we serve? And so, um, but it was an eye-opener to me because they asked some very specific hard things and I'm looking at some of my colleagues not realizing that they've experienced mm. some of those things. So. Yeah, thank you. Let's go to first say, uh, show up. Mm -hmm. uh, and call that advice, shut up. <laughs> Uh, and, and to listen and listen and listen. But, but then I thought about how few of us even have the bandwidth, the space in our lives for that kind of work mm -hmm. because we're so overextended. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if in preparation for that, um, creating space in our lives mm -hmm. where we actually have the freedom to be interrupted or when a moment comes and we have an opportunity to sit with a colleague or a neighbor mm -hmm. to actually be there and not go to the next to-do list. Mm -hmm. right. I wonder if one of the moves, just thinking for myself, it isn't just showing up and shutting up, but creating space so that I, that I actually have, have the room to do it for others. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I think when we start to think about these things and like, oh, I'd like to be this, I'd like to do that. Like, oh, the reality is, I'm so busy, I'm not <laughs> nothing else is going to change. Um, so thank you. A big challenge also in, say, wanting to help is mm -hmm. the way that we think about it. Like, there is some built-in superiority there. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm in a position now. You are worse off than me. Right. And I'm going to come to mm -hmm. you. Yeah. And that, I mean, it may be a fact that there is fortune that has come to you through often privileged sometimes work, but like it, the superiority hurts mm -hmm. the connection, right? And the ability to actually like do that listening, right? And you think like, well, I know because look at me, I'm doing great. You're not doing so good, so right? I don't know what we need. I know, right? And like that is pretty hurtful to being able to build the relationship and actually provide like something real that actually can be accepted. Right. Like even if you are have good intentions and have something to provide, it can't be accepted if you don't actually understand the need that you're coming in yeah. as a career. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. Um, I have a friend who called that benevolent imperialism. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you everyone for um, sharing your thoughts and your experiences. Um, if we go back to that image of the pit uh, and, and even, even the imagery, uh, Lee, it, it, it uh, has this idea that, oh, someone is in the pit and I'm not in the pit. And so there's even a problem with that imagery. Um, but even just from a standpoint of some people feeling like, okay, I am in suffering, I am oppressed, and the other people not feeling that, I think one of the things um, that we're saying is it doesn't, good, it doesn't do any good to stand outside of that from the edge and just to kind of yell down any advice. And, and I do think um, the advice that we usually have that's decent is from the things that we've suffered ourselves. And that probably should limit us to what advice we offer. Um, if, we've, you know, if we've been through stuff, well, maybe we've start, we start to have a, something to say. But if not, you know, maybe we're, it's a much better idea to listen. And then um, another thought is just asking permission to, to go and sit and be with. And not, as, not even assuming, like, I'm going to sweep in and 
and get to suffer alongside you. But like maybe we have to ask permission to say, I want to come down and sit. And as we're sitting and, and, and identifying and, and feeling that, maybe we feel how dark a place is. Maybe we feel how lonely a place is and how uh, we start to feel some of that hopelessness. And maybe that experience of sitting and being quiet, that is good fodder for lament to arise because we start to feel those things. And, and lament becomes true in our hearts because we're starting to feel hopeless. Um, like our neighbor. Well, I think that's a good mm-hmm. point because, I, you know, I was just sitting here thinking, is you know, sometimes things happen to us and then we forget about it. And you were sharing that, and I think that's so important for us to go back in those times in our life that maybe, I remember the year and a half ago when I didn't have a job, and to remember what that felt like for us. Mm-hmm. And then think about how that feels like for other people that don't that are in that same building don't you know, have that income or whatever and to remember. So yeah. maybe it's that remembering what it felt like when we were in that in that uh, stage of our life. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and the the third thing I was gonna say is um, is that the power in any of these situations is not going to be from us. The power that we see in Lamentations three is in God's faithfulness to save. So it's not in the power of us, or not in the power of the church to fix things. It's not in the power of the the powers that we see around us, the state, uh, society. We join people in lament, I think, to find God's mercy and salvation with them, not to bring it to them. Um, But I do think think of Emmanuel in this season, too, and how God is with us and how God meets us. And that's not always to the people we would expect for him to, to meet us with. Uh, and, and that's how it is. That's the story, isn't it, of uh, the man that gets beaten up on the side of the road and the one that comes to save them is the last person that he would expect. Not part of the family of God, but it's Samaritan that comes and takes care of him. And God meets us in those dark places in surprising ways. Um, I want to finish with, um, we read, I guess, uh, a song that we sing sometimes. It's one of Storyline's repertoire. Uh, the steadfast, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And um, a lot of times we sing that song as it's kind of like a mountaintop song, you know, like, its mercies never come to an end. And it changes things to think about that song being right here in the middle of Lamentations, in the middle of Lament. It's not sung from the mountaintop. It's sung from the pit. And in that singing that song is more like a heart cry. Like, I can't see anything good, but I'm holding on with my last breath to this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. I can imagine somebody just repeating that. He's, he's my portion. He's what I need. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Lord, uh, we lift up uh, ourselves to You and ask You to uh, uh, be a people that can lament and that can confess our sins that can listen, that can 
not think that we're better or superior, but that we can um, be with people and, and find, um, and be with our, our own, our own neighbors, our own family, our own uh, uh, others that are in this group right here and just need somebody to be with um, and be present and listen and feel the hopelessness alongside. And uh, or we wait on you to come and save. It's your power and your character that we wait on. And um, we put our stake in the ground, waiting on you, that you're the one we're waiting on. In Jesus we pray. Amen.